Hello. Welcome, welcome back. Um, This is now episode four. We are already in week two of December space events. So many exciting things that you can catch in the night sky in your own backyard with or without binoculars or a telescope. So hello, I'm your host, Athena Brensberger, back here on Space Talk, exclusively on Colin. And I'm so happy to be back here and to have all of you guys here listening. Um, there's just so many cool things that are happening in space. Uh, some breaking news that came out today of um, NASA's new astronaut class uh, for the Artemis generation. So we're going to be covering that in tomorrow's episode podcast. So come back for episode five. Uh, we're going to be de- deep diving into all of the chosen candidates for um, those who might be going to the moon, the potential astronauts that um, are probably going to be flying on the Artemis mission returning to the moon. So very exciting stuff um, just in store for for space and space exploration um, this week. So I wanted to go ahead and give you enough heads up of things that are happening in the night sky for this week so that you can go ahead and catch it, um, starting with things that are happening tonight. So if you want to get outside tonight, you're probably going to catch Venus. And if you remember what we, we call Venus, the evening star. And that is because it is the first most prominent object that looks like a star in the night sky. Um, But you'll notice it's not twinkling. And that is because it's a planet. It's located closer to us. It's not twinkling because there isn't a bunch of dust and gas in the way in between us and the object, which is usually why stars twinkle because they're located much further away. And there's lots of dust and, and gas clouds like our own Milky Way galaxy Um, and other objects that can a lot of times obstruct our view, causing the light to dim and brighten, hence causing the twinkling. But starting tonight, Venus and the crescent moon are aligned at just three degrees apart. So you're going to really catch this beautiful sight. Now, I don't know about you, what your favorite moon phase is, but I love the crescent moon, whether it's um, waxing or waning, uh, which means that either it's growing or it's shrinking. So going from either a new moon towards the full moon phase or coming out of the full moon going back towards the new moon phase basically just the orientation of the crescent is what you'll notice is the difference either it's on the left side or the right side of the moon and the crescent moon is just so beautiful because it illuminates the shadow of the moon the darker side the part that's still obstructed by earth Um, so it's really cool and i love the way that it looks especially when it's lined up with venus so you can catch that tonight and then tomorrow on december 7th The moon is just about 5.5 degrees below Saturn. Now, remember what we said about degrees, Um, our fist, um, average adult arm length and average adult fist size is about 10 degrees from the base of our knuckle to the top of our knuckle. So um, keeping that in mind, about half of a fist size is just about the distance between the moon and Saturn. So just try and picture that if you're holding your arm out. Um, the moon and Saturn are going to be really, really close to each other in the sky. So that's going to be super cool. Um, you can see this without a telescope or binoculars. Um, 
And also for my friends that are maybe in light polluted areas, such as New York City, um, you can definitely see uh, Venus without a, a telescope. Saturn, you may be able to see it um, maybe in like darker areas. So not like Midtown Manhattan, but maybe like Brooklyn or Queens, because Saturn is a little bit dimmer than Venus um, or maybe Central Park. So I hope that you get to go do some some stargazing around the city. And then on December 8th this week, the moon is just below Jupiter now. And it's about seven degrees below Jupiter. So again, pretty close proximity, still less than a fist distance from each other. Um, and yeah, Jupiter is just phenomenally bright. Um, it's a little bit dimmer than Venus, but a lot brighter than Saturn. So you'll see this really, really cool alignment. And finally, between now December 6th to the 8th, so most of the, the beginning of this week, just at about 45 minutes after sunset, the crescent moon is passing through the constellation Capricornus, as well as the planets Venus and Saturn. So you have this conjunction now in the constellation of Capricornus or Capricorn of the moon, Saturn, and Venus. So it's going to look really, really cool. Um, the only thing is it might be kind of tough to catch. This will be only about 10 degrees above your south-southwest horizon. Now, I didn't stutter. I did say south twice. And that is because you're not facing directly due south. You're facing in your south-southwestern direction. And so when you're looking in the region, so if you have your compass out, due south would be directly in front of you. Due west would be directly to, wait a second, hold on, to your right. <laughs> and so you're going to want to face closer to the south than the west, uh, but not too far over to your west area. And this is where you're going to be able to catch, you'll catch the moon first, because it's going to be the most prominent. And then you'll see two little objects near it, and that will be Venus and Saturn. And all this is only, like I said, about 10 degrees above the horizon. So imagining your fist distance again, average adult arm length and average adult fist height, um, you're going to want to hold that out. And that is how you can catch this really, really cool alignment, a conjunction of the moon, Venus and Saturn in the constellation Capricorn. And then ending with this week on December 9th, back to Venus, it actually reaches its maximum brightness at a magnitude of negative 4.9. Now, um, it, I'm not going to spend much time going over the magnitude scale because I did do an episode on that. So if you have any questions about what I mean by negative 4.9, I highly recommend going back to the previous episode. Um, I believe it was episode three, where I go over the apparent magnitude scale versus the absolute magnitude scale. It'll be very useful to have that knowledge um, when moving forward with some more of these celestial events that are going to be coming up in future podcasts. So that's that's everything as far as planetary and um, constellation alignments happening this week. But we do have a deep sky object this week, deep sky object. So for this, I highly recommend using a telescope or binoculars. Um, but if you're in a dark enough region, you will be able to see this object. It's known as the Large Magellanic Cloud. Now, this is actually one of our neighbors. It's a galaxy, but it's called the Large Magellanic Cloud because it's kind of crazy looking. It's not really like a 
concise shape. And this is because it's probably gone through some type of merging or collision with another galaxy in the past. This is what astronomers currently believe um, because it has this very irregular shape known as an irregular galaxy. And it is our galactic neighbor. So it's pretty close to us. Um, we have a small Magellanic cloud and large Magellanic cloud. But on December 12th, the large one is what's visible in the night sky. Um, the only thing is it's it's more so visible in further central Central America and then south of the equator. So if you're in the southern hemisphere, great news for you. Uh, the large Magellanic cloud is circumpolar, so it's visible all night long. For those who are just bordering the equator and very southern tip of the United States would be able to catch it, but at a very, very uh, short period of time at, at night. The time will be at just about after sunset. So you're going to want to catch it maybe about 45 minutes after sunset. I would give it about 45 to an hour because you want this guy to be dark enough, but it won't be hanging around long. It's only going to be visible for about 45 minutes to an hour once, once it actually pops up in your southeastern horizon. So face your southeastern horizon. It's going to be about 40 degrees above that region. So remember when I was saying before for south southwestern, so you're going to want to now do southeast for your large Magellanic cloud. So facing southeast, about 40 degrees up. So stretch out your arm with your fist and go up four times. And that's about approximately where it will be located in the sky. And um, that's going to be really, really cool. You can see it without a telescope. Or binoculars, which is really, really exciting. Um, but it'll probably look just like very dim to you. It might look kind of like a fuzzy object. But once you get a pair of binoculars, maybe even a spotting scope, um, which is a little bit um, smaller than a telescope, but still has some pretty strong magnification to it. I do have one myself and I love it. Um, or getting, of course, a telescope to view this will just really bring out its brilliance. So highly recommend all those things that are happening this week. So whew, we just finished off with our um, must-see celestial events for this week. So woohoo! we are now moving into space history. So now transitioning out of our current events, let's now move into our historical events. What happened this week in space history? Well, quite a lot of things actually, which is really, really cool. Um, there's an extra thing that I am going to add in here, which uh, didn't make the cutoff for the week because it was technically yesterday um, for the 5th. And um, so we'll just include it anyway. And so on December 5th in 1909 was when the first aircraft that was built for people took its first glider flight. This was in Australia and it was designed by George Taylor. Um, really, really cool imagery. I highly recommend you checking this out. December 5th, 1909 first aircraft built for, for people to fly humans, a crude, crude flight, um, took its first glider test. And this was in Australia in 1909, designed by George Taylor. And then December 8th in 1964, a United Airlines Caravelle made the USA's first computer-controlled landing. It was This was at Dulles International Airport. Now, this is so exciting. This was the very first computer-controlled landing. Um, this was, this, this, I don't know if we really realized that how much um, computers play a role right now in modern day, um, uh, not just 
space flight. Well, that's space flight, but also aircraft um, just to, to get from one place to another, another city or another country. Um, computers play a very vital role. Um, but on top of that, if you think about, say, tying this now to space exploration, what SpaceX is doing completely automated. It reaches a point where the computers completely take over. If you haven't watched a SpaceX launch before, I highly recommend doing it and paying close attention to um, what the Capcom is is, say, is reading off and is saying and is speaking um, and also checking the uh, information written on the screen because it shows all the different points um, during spaceflight, during the launch. And there is a point just before takeoff where everything is completely controlled by the computers. Um, of course, the humans can step in, cause a, a, a pause or maybe a, a launch abort um, if they need to, but it's really become so much more uh, prominent with computers. Now moving into December 10th in 1998, this was the launch of Astrid 2 from Russia. Astrid 2 was a Swedish microsatellite and its purpose was to analyze the Earth's magnetic field. So it wanted to analyze the aurora borealis, the northern lights that you might see if, you, if you've ever explored to a region where you can see it. There's even parts of Canada where you can catch it, which is really cool. Um, and this, this launch, this was, a, this was a really small satellite. It was a microsatellite um, by Sweden. And it was one of the, the first to start to analyze our, our own, very own magnetic field on Earth to figure out what, what, its, what, our, what its properties are like, what its behavior is like, how that interacts with uh, possibly other spacecraft, how that interacts with our atmosphere, our climate, answering all these questions. Um, and so it was really, really cool. Um, tiny little satellite. I highly recommend looking up an image of it. Um, very, very small for its time. But now we even have smaller satellites called CubeSats. Um, which is super cool. Moving into December 10th in 1959, this is when the U.S. Ambassador Lodge presented a resolution to the Assembly of the United Nations recommending that an international conference on the peaceful uses of outer space should, should happen within a year or two. And just two days later, the United Nations created a permanent 24-nation committee for this purpose, now, this is what later birthed the Space Treaty. So this was December 10th, 1959. The Space Treaty was 1967. So it took a little bit, but um, this was what really started to bring awareness and conversation around, okay, we have a lot of things, a lot of people flying to space. Yuri Gagarin um, from, from, from the USSR. You had um, Valentina Tereshkova, also from the USA Cosmonaut. Um, and then now, of course, we're moving into um, the Apollo missions during this era and then eventually the space shuttle program. So it's really important now that if more people are going to space. How do we maintain the peace? And so this was when it was first proposed on December 10th, 1959 by U.S. Ambassador Lodge. Uh, and this was presented to the United Nations. And our final thing for space history for this week is December 12th, 1929. The Smithsonian Institution presented the Langley Medal to to Richard E. Bird. So now, I don't know if you guys know about Richard E. Bird. You should definitely check out um, some of his his uh, history, what he's done. Now he received the Langley Medal because of his flights over north and and over the North and South Poles, which is 
really, this was, this was a pioneering development of um, what it was like to use these types of airplanes, what it was like to fly these types of airplanes. What is their limit? What is the extent in which they can achieve? Um, and so this, this was awarded in 1929. So that was, I was not really that long after the first aircraft. So this is funny. There's two things happening this week um, that have to do with aircrafts. So December 5th, 1909, is when the first uh, glider f- flight test uh, ended up happening um, through um, George Taylor's development of, of an aircraft that was built for people. And then just, yeah, 20 years later, we're now seeing what it's like to fly over the North and the South Poles um, using completely new technology of aircraft. Uh, so this was a really exciting week, I would say, for just in general aircraft development, which later led to spacecraft development. Um, if you haven't seen the space shuttles, those are are really modeled after what our understanding um, was for for spacecraft, what our understanding was for aircraft, um, the wings, the uh, the tail in the back, the shape of it, how to carry cargo, how to carry people. And it even took off and landed very similar to aircraft, um, which is very different than how our modern day rockets are, um, except for, of course, Virgin Galactic. Um, and that was really supposed to be more of like, I would say, a an easy step for people to start to explore space from more of a tourist perspective uh, to recognize, OK, hmm, I'm used to t- taking flights. This might be a little bit more comfortable than getting on a rocket that's going to like, you know, sh- shake like crazy and um, cause a lot of um, thrust and propulsion. It might be kind of uncomfortable for some people. So that is uh, that's, by the way, is something that we covered a couple days ago in our previous podcast that is titled So You Want to Get to Space um, and the Different Ways in Which You Can Travel to Space. So that is about everything for space history. So we are now going to transition into our moon phase of the week. Alrighty. So our moon phase of this week is the first quarter moon. And that's going to happen on December 10th at about approximately 8.36 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, the first quarter moon, um, if you were to ever look at the moon phases in whole, um, what you see it going from is a new moon into a crescent, and it's starting to grow now into a half moon. So the first quarter is a half moon. It's not, um, you know, uh, it's not a, a quarter of a pie shape or anything like that. Um, it, you could see quite a lot of craters already. Um, it's a really cool time to still be able to catch maybe some deeper objects, some dimmer objects, some dimmer stars, uh, because you don't really have the fullness, brightness of the full moon, which is just reflected sunlight, by the way. But I'm sure you all might have known that. But if you didn't, fun fact. Um And so thankfully during this time, you should be able to still catch some deep sky objects um, that may be visible, such as, well, ones that we mentioned already earlier in this episode, um, the Large Magellanic Cloud. So good timing for that, um, because you're only going to have the first quarter moon. So that is, that's basically everything that uh, we have to look forward to for this week, as far as what's in the night sky, and of course, some historical fun facts. 
Something else I always want to include is our astronomy word of the week. I think this is a really important factor to, to keep in mind that typically we would only come across through literature, through reading things. Uh, of course, also maybe listening to things like this podcast. But a lot of the terminology used in the field of astronomy and also in, in space exploration, like rocket launches, so rocket science, it's not really that common. Uh, I, I mean, so the word of the week is barycenter. Who's ever heard of a barycenter unless you're in the field of astronomy? Probably not a lot of people. Um, maybe you learned about it in class. Or actually, I always like to sort of use this demonstration to help understand this, the center of mass is holding like a hammer, for instance, and balancing it horizontally on its side and trying to figure out if you want to balance it on one or two fingers, where should you probably move uh, the, the hammer along um, the, the tip of your finger to see where it can balance? Because if you hold it right in the middle of the handle, it's probably going to tip over on the heavier side. But the body center or the, the center of mass here needs to be located closer to the heavier end, which is the part of the hammer that you use for hammering. Um, and so similarly, this is what happens in space. This is what happens with, say, the Jupiter, sorry, the planet Jupiter and the sun. Some fun fact about this is that the is that Jupiter doesn't actually orbit the sun. Okay, technically, I guess we can say, yes, all the planets in the solar system are orbiting around the center of mass called the sun. But um, if you want to be very specific and technical, it turns out that the center of mass in which Jupiter is orbiting is actually just next to the sun rather than smack in the middle of the sun. And this is because Jupiter has so much mass in itself that it, it, it doesn't get pulled in close enough to, um, to the sun to then orbit around it and have it completely uh, control its orbit controlled by the gravitational effect of the sun. So instead, you now have this really interesting um, orbit happening where the sun and Jupiter are now moving around this common center of mass known as the Bari center. So this also you might see with binary star systems, for instance. So I'll give you the, the proper definition of it uh, rather than my own rambly explanation. Uh, we're trying to give visuals. But um, now I'll get into binary star systems. But a Bari center is a center of mass in which two or more celestial objects orbit. So as I mentioned, Jupiter doesn't technically orbit the sun. But in fact, it and the sun both orbit a common center of mass, which is somewhere next to the sun, a little bit just outside the sun, but not past the orbit of Mercury, which is the closest planet to the sun. So basically where there's a gravitational equilibrium, aka just a balance of gravitational forces. Now, this is um, really common for stars, actually. So our sun it's, is kind of a weirdo. It's a solo star system. It's, it's, it's by itself. It's not orbiting with another star. That's uncommon for, for most stars. Um, most calculated stars that, that have been observed, that have been um, either added on, on, on the various different databases, um, when it's been mapped out, tend to be in, in couples, tend to be in a binary system. And so to have one completely by itself is quite rare. And it kind of begs the question of, well, I wonder why that is. Um, 
And I would say that a, a very big important factor to this is that objects tend to move around one another. Just all throughout space, we see circles and, and ellipses everywhere. Um, not just with planets, but stars themselves rotate on their axes. Planets rotate on their axes. And so we're kind of just living in this universe that's just, oh, it's just always spinning. Our galaxy is spinning. Um, and then our, our local group of galaxies are spinning. And then so you have this constant motion. And so a lot of times, because one thing tends to be gravitationally bound to another, they tend to end up kind of crossing paths and eventually circling around each other. Think about your coffee cup. And if you were to add maybe, let's just say two marshmallows, all right, maybe we'll, take, we'll, we'll say it's hot chocolate instead. But if you add one marshmallow and, you're, and you start swirling it around with a spoon, it's going to start to spin around that center of the, the, the hot chocolate. As soon as you start to add a second marshmallow, those two marshmallows will now start to trace each other. And this is because while they're being controlled by the motion of the fluid that's in the cup, but they'll start to get closer and closer to each other because they are being pulled in by whatever the strongest force is. And the strongest force in this case is us using the spoon, spinning the hot chocolate. So in a sense, if you think about um, kind of how galaxies are forming, you have this really strong center of mass and it's starting to pull a lot of things in. So say that it's um, the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which is a supermassive black hole, about 10, million, 10, 10 billion times the mass of our sun and it's called Sagittarius A. And it's starting to accrete and pull in anything that's near it. And this is what's known as an, an accretion disk. So it's an accumulation of things like stars and, and planets and um, maybe even clusters. And it's starting to all accumulate around now this center of mass. And as things start to pull in closer and closer, some of it might eventually get pulled into the black hole and some of it might stay in the safe zone, which is just beyond the event horizon. We'll get into black holes in another episode. But uh, just for, for context, imagine that now this galaxy and this black hole is the hot chocolate and the center is where our spoon is that's spinning the hot cocoa. So things are starting to now get more and more accumulated towards the center. So now if we were to stretch this out and say we now take it from being a mug to a huge like... Um, like a, like the bathtub. Say now you have the bathtub filled with hot chocolate, which is probably not a good idea, but let's just say that that's, that's what it's filled with. And now you have tons of marshmallows in it. If you just start to cause some ripples throughout this um, hot tub, of, uh, this, this, this bathtub of hot chocolate, um, you'll start to have marshmallows accumulating towards each other, wherever you cause the ripples. And wherever you're causing these ripples in the bathtub of hot chocolate, the marshmallows will start to get closer and closer to each other. And this is because they are picking up on the other areas where there's dips happening in the hot chocolate from the marshmallows, where there is some type of gravitational interaction, which we would be causing with, you know, the spoon or whatever we're spinning. But on a grander scale of things in the in the fabric of space-time, when you're having these stars that are near each other and they're all spinning throughout this universe, 
if they have, if they come just close enough in each other's orbits where their gravity can recognize, they, they, they recognize the gravity of each other, or we'll just say it recognizes each other, but really it's just uncontrolled gravitational force that's happening. It pulls them in and then they become bound and they start to spin in this possibly eternal dance until eventually one of them or both of them die uh, either as a, as an exploding supernova or as just expanding out, cooling down into a red giant star um, until all of its outer layers eventually disperse and, and turn into a nebula. So um, that's a, that was a little bit of a, of a digression kind of going into Bari Center Astronomy Word of the Week and understanding a little bit about how, how and why there are so many stars that are in binary systems and why it's less common to have a star like our sun that is completely standalone. So maybe next time you go outside and the sun's outside, just add a little bit of appreciation in your mind of, of the sun being there. Because maybe if it was a double star system, we, we might not even be here. We might not even be able to withstand that gravitational, <laughs> that gravitational dance happening between two giant stars um, or just well, two stars to us. To us, it's giant. So that is Astronomy Word of the Week. Um, I'm going to give a quick, quick little musical break here, and we are going to then go into some breaking news to close off Space Talk for today. And right as the beat drops is when I'll just come back in. This is really fun. I love testing out uh, music uh, on this podcast. Hope you guys are liking it. If you are, just if you, maybe give me a thumbs up or or a party hat. Maybe one of the emojis down below. Yeah, I just got a thumbs up. Awesome, awesome. That just made me really happy. Um, so some really exciting news. NASA just announced their 10 new astronaut candidates who could fly to the moon on the Artemis mission. So I mentioned this very briefly in the beginning of the podcast, and I am going to do a full episode breaking it down tomorrow. Um, I have that scheduled for, I think, 1 p.m. Um, uh, Central Time. I'll have to double check. But I'm pretty sure I have it set for 1 p.m. Central Time tomorrow. Um, but to give you a very quick breakdown and brief of it, uh, very recently in 2020, uh, NASA just opened up their astronaut applications um, for those to apply to be part of the Artemis generation, those returning to the moon. So this is going to be super exciting whenever this mission happens. Um, there, there, I don't know if there's really an estimated date now because there's been a few changes. Um, so with that being said, uh, I will update everybody tomorrow. But this is just super exciting. This just groundbreaking news just released today. Um, 10 new astronaut candidates. And um, I can't wait to follow their journey. So Come back tomorrow um, uh, here on Space Talk. I'm going to go over each of these candidates that got chosen, what their pasts are and their history and their journey, and uh, what the estimated time is for them to go to the moon. So once again, thank you guys so much for joining me today here on Space Talk. Um, I hope you all have a fabulous rest of your day. And until next time, let's just party out. Woohoo! Ad Astra, everyone.